Michael Crane Podcast. Everything you need to know about business and entrepreneurship with your host, Michael Crane. Today we have Chris Lee, who is a freelance writer whose wise words earn his clients more traffic, more conversions, and a whole lot more money. In 2017, he rode a push bike across Canada on a ride that taught perseverance, fortitude, and lifelong lessons. Today, we'll be talking about his ride, the lessons he learned, and his career as a writer. So welcome, Chris. Tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on your uh, on your podcast. And thanks for the, the good introduction as well. That sums it up. So, yeah, as you said, I'm a freelance writer. Um, my background is in SEO marketing, and I worked in various agencies for a while and always sort of felt a pull away from that environment towards something more uh, independent. And then in 2015, I jumped ship, started trying to set up on my own, and it's evolved slowly from there. Yeah, the Canada ride was something that was in the pipeline for many years before it happened in 2017. And it was always a sort of interesting experience juggling the two things that I wanted to be in my future, which was the sort of freelance career and the bike ride that would take several months of my time. Since the ride, it's it's not directly related to the work I do, but it's definitely like, there's definitely lessons that I learned on the ride that are valuable on a sort of day-to-day basis. And it was, yeah, formative experience, good fun, enjoyable. Let's, let's talk about how your freelance writing gives you the opportunity to go and do a ride like this. Yeah, for sure, because it's a level of flexibility that just isn't available in a job on someone else's terms, I guess. So we took three months of cycling and we had to, I had to take that window of time out of my schedule and keep all of my clients aware of what was happening and sort of wind things down enough that I could ride every day, but without detaching completely so that their sort of businesses weren't impacted and stuff. I think that's the new era of working nowadays, isn't it? To get your freedom back, to do the things that you love in life and gives you the flexibility to take off when you want. But tell me more about the ride exactly. How far is it? And where did you start from? And where did you end? Riding across Canada is pretty variable in terms of the bookends, where you start and where you finish. We started in Vancouver and we finished in St. John's, which is on the east coast on Newfoundland, which is like a separate island away from the Canadian mainland. So we, yeah, we did Vancouver to St. John's, which was which clocked in at about 4,500 miles. Yeah. And you went from west to east or east to west? So we went west to east. So Ah. landed in Vancouver in British Columbia on the west coast and then pushed east through the Rockies, through the prairies, into Ontario, through the Maritimes, and then out to Newfoundland to finish. Why why did you go west to east? So the, the theory is that the prevailing wind is in your favor if you go west to east. So you're gonna be pushing, even though you've got the Rocky Mountains straight, sort of two or three days ride out of Vancouver. So you tackle a mountain range straight away. After that, it's supposed to be fairly plain sailing because the wind is behind you. 
even though we've read that in a lot of, sort of cycling forums and it's the received wisdom, it's not something that I encountered a lot of the time we were faced riding into wind on a, yeah, on a ride that distance. It's sort of, it's not such a problem. So how long did it take you, Chris? So the ride in total took three months. Uh, set off from Vancouver on the 17th of June, 2017, and then arrived in St. John's <clears throat> pretty much three months to the day. So on the 16th of September. Um, we weren't riding every day. I think I think total numbers was about 91 days on in Canada with about 63 of those cycling. So it was sort of two days on to one day off overall. And the rest days were split out. So we'd like cycle for a week at a time and then have a week off, a weekend off in a city and then cycle for another week and have a two or three day period off. So how many miles a day would you cycle in general? I think the average breaks down to somewhere around 60 to 63 miles a day. We were usually, I'd say the average we'd aim for would probably be sort of 70, 70 to 80. And then on the longest days, there was 200 mile days where we just wanted to crank out a lot of distance to get somewhere we were particularly interested to be yeah so yes mid 60s is the average but quite a variable upper and lower limit on top of that in business i think about lots of things but certainly 20 years ago when i started out in business was different then than it is right now Mm -hmm. and if i had not had the persistency like you to keep pedaling i may have stopped 19 years six months ago because it was really hard and certainly 20 years later I'm still planning processing and building systems that are going to have a massive impact and John Hayfield an English playwright wrote many years ago Rome wasn't built in a day most people know that statement But they don't know the one that comes after that, that links the two together. So the real full statement says, Rome wasn't built in a day, but for every hour of every day, a brick was laid one by one and Rome was built. And that stayed with me from the start of my business career. So similarly with you, You started in British Columbia and you pedaled one pedal at a time. So tell me your thought process and let me tell, let's start with a visual. It's a Wednesday morning. It's pouring with rain. You have your bike locked up outside where you're staying and you've got 60 miles to travel. Tell me what was going through your mind on days like that. Okay. So like you say, it was definitely one pedal at a time. And it's incredible how quickly they add up and you see this distance sort of building behind you that feels like it quickly gets to distances you never thought you'd be able to ride in one go. Like when you're hitting the 1,000, 2,000 mile mark. And as you also say, there's the clear destination in front of you. So even though the route I rode was pretty open to improvisation, the bookend of St. John's was like not negotiable. That was there. And I had a pretty good idea of the distance required to get to it. So it was an incredibly motivating target. I don't recall having a bad day on the ride, which is 
something I'm very grateful for because I think it's sort of testament to partly the luck of having a pretty smooth time, but also partly the planning that went into it to make sure that that negativity wouldn't occur. And there were certainly bad moments. There were times where either me or Christian, who is my friend that I rode with, wanted to get off the bikes, like stop riding for a little while, cool off. And that that varied. So sometimes it was getting a puncture and a particularly like difficult stretch. Other times it was, like you say, rain, bad weather. Sometimes it was just general sort of fatigue and malaise that comes with a large amount of physical exercise. And all these sort of random factors would sort of pop their heads up occasionally and threaten to make things feel a little bit less achievable. But yeah, back to the previous point, there wasn't a single day that was bad. On the mornings where you wake up and you feel a bit rough and beaten down, you've had like a bad sleep or it's you wake up to the rain and you know you've got to pack up all your gear in the rain and it's going to be soggy all day and you're going to be soggy all day. Those are challenging for sure. But I think I think the knowledge that you're doing something that you've planned and put your mind to, I think the knowledge that even though it's unpleasant weather or you're not feeling so great, you're still working towards your goal on your terms. And the fact that you're doing it with someone who shares that vision, there's an incredible amount of camaraderie and mutual support and motivation and all this stuff and it combines to make sure that there were no real negatives so it's just a case of pushing through those feelings as they arrived reminding yourself of the bigger picture and keeping those pedals turning like you say one at a time and then you start off in the morning feeling soggy and down and then by lunchtime you've pedaled a few thousand times and you're feeling like warmed up and recharged and by that evening you're dry again everything feels back to normal and you just keep going so did you find yourself looking over your shoulder from where you had come from or were you focused more on the destination where you were going? So every day when we got to camp, I would. Well, the first thing I did would be to get out of my journal, look at my handlebar GPS, take down the number of miles we'd ridden that day and add it to my list of miles ridden so far and add it to the previous day's list. So I had a running total of the total distance ridden. So in that sense, I was sort of looking over my shoulder and looking back at this line on the map that was longer and longer every day. And that this the daily, the daily sense of accomplishment that came with that was a very powerful feeling. And so in that sense, I was looking backwards. But the main thing was definitely the road unfurling in front of you towards the, the destination for sure. And it, it was St. John's was always there, like a sort of lighthouse on the distant horizon that you knew you were going to get to. But there's all these sort of subsidiary beacons to ride toward as well. So a lot of the time when you're riding across, you're in sort of relative wilderness, a long way between towns. Certain stretches, it would be one town a day, maybe two, very few people. You'd be on these big Trans-Canada highway, but there'd be only one car every 15 minutes sort of thing. So even though you're in a fairly you're in a big country that's fairly densely populated close to the border and you can tell that you're around people you're still it's still very sparse so small things become beacons so if you know that you've been riding since lunchtime but around evening time you're going to get to a town and there's going to be a bar and you can have a beer that's an incredible like small scale motivation for that day and if you know that in a week's time you're going to get to Calgary or Montreal where you've got friends and you're going to spend a couple of days just chilling out off the, off the saddle that's a beacon so there's 
behind you there's this motivation motivational stuff building every day and then ahead of you there's all these different sort of targets pulling you in with a different amount of gravity to keep you i think it's really important to know where you're going by setting goals but all too often we look back over our shoulder and we can do nothing about the path we've trod we can only move things forward to the end goal and i am a firm believer that if you have a clear goal in mind providing you have systems processes in place you will always achieve and there only comes a point when self doubt enters our mind where we doubt ourselves and that's where we struggle but you mentioned your friend christian there how important was it to have a buddy along your side because in business all too often people in partnerships become a little bit fractious sometimes and the partnership deviates and you lose friends but certainly when you're not in a partnership business there are other restraints so tell me more about how important it is to have a buddy on your trip i think it's i think it's crucial for something at this scale i think i would have struggled a lot more if it was a solo ride just because of the fact that the camaraderie is like a the camaraderie that builds is a really powerful tool in helping one person out of a lull when they may be in one and you get it's a very it's a constant reminder to engage with the experience and share the experience with someone else and you're having this you're having the exact you're having a pretty much identical experience to that person but you're both experiencing it in a different way and there's the conversations that come out of that and they help you to engage with it in a different way to what your default is so it broadens the experience yeah it's something i found incredibly valuable basically um when you say christian saw different things if you were going along the same path why would he see be seeing different things to you i guess it's the way you see what it's just the, the things you notice in the world and like what what things attract your attention and keep your attention and which things you value and how they fit into your sort of worldview i guess there were certain there were there were stops on the route that christian was keen to do stops on the route that i was keen to do so we sort of sculpted this shared experience between us and then in 2 months in in Quebec City we picked up a third friend who was originally going to come with us the whole way but his his career sort of got in the way of that um he wasn't able to get the period of time off that was required to do the whole ride so he just did the final month with us so at that point the dynamics were shifted again and it was this opportunity to bring someone else into the fold and see the tour fresh so from that point on it was fresh for him but we we were sort of seasoned old salts with the ride who'd been doing it for two months so it was this interesting interplay between the different rhythms that we had so Christian and I were very set in our established touring rhythms and we had like a good routine going it was like very systematic what our days looked like to tie back into your point previously about building systems and processes we were definitely in that groove and then Alex comes along who's for the last few months he's been in an office every day and his bike gear isn't configured properly yet and he's not up to his physical peak so he's like his routine and rhythm is very different and integrating that together and sort of bringing a third person into the camaraderie is really interesting as well so if you strip it down to the sort of bare bones of the routine it was getting up fairly early usually around sort of 8 8:15 getting on the road by probably about 9 9:30 
and then trying to get as many miles under your belt as possible by lunchtime so that you've front loaded the day and given yourself the so by front loading the day you give yourself the opportunity to take things more easy in the afternoon so chris on a day-to-day basis what did your routine look like so on average i'd say we were fairly early risers with a fairly early finish so we wanted to be on the road by 9 nine thirty every day and have as many miles under our belt as possible by lunchtime so that the bulk of the, the work was done for the day and we could sort of relax into an easier rhythm in the afternoon um so daylight is daylight and temperature were basically the guiding factors in how far we'd ride and when we'd stop so it's always nice to be at your daily destination before sort of dusk so that you can unpack set yourself up find a nice spot to camp have dinner all this sort of stuff while it's still light outside um we try to avoid riding in the hottest part of the day which is generally between sort of 11 and 2 and in certain parts Canada in summer is pretty hot and in certain parts of Saskatchewan it was temperatures in the sort of mid 30 range so riding under a blue sky in the middle of the day was not only uncomfortably hot but also like carries the risk of heat stroke and all this stuff so we'd usually try and be having a sort of a fairly long lunch break somewhere in the shade in the middle of the day once you you can strip the daily routine down to a scaffold which is fairly consistent throughout the days so get up eat pack up hit the road ride stop and then do the same in reverse when you look when i look back at the ride there isn't really an average day because it's so open to variability and so open to improvisation and things would happen and it's how you respond to them that determines whether you stick with the original plan of going to x town or y town whether you deviate your route a little bit to see something else or whether you decide to stop early and spend a day in this town and camp out in the bush nearby. Yeah, even even with plans and systems and processes in place, it's still completely open to change. And a thing I really noticed as we got further and further into the country was that adaptability and willingness to sort of go with the flow of unexpected events and how how necessary that is to really enjoy the tour because i think if you i think if i'd have arrived with a really strict itinerary of towns and distances so on day one we'd get to this town day two we'd get to this town day three we'd get to this town and some people plan bike tours like this it's completely regimented and they've got hotels booked to each space so there's no opportunity to deviate i think if i'd have arrived with that and closed off that avenue to change what the days looked like that i think i'd have found that less sort of rewarding but you see these are the lessons in life the simple routines repeated over time get the maximum results when the apollo spaceship went to the moon that spaceship was off course more than it was on course and throughout that whole time the apollo spaceship was making course variation how restricted were you to travel the route that you planned? Not a lot, to be honest, especially within, so within individual days, barely at all. That was often a case of get up, get going, ride. And then in the evening, early in the late afternoon evening, once you start feeling things winding down, so you feel your energy reserves depleting and you don't, you can imagine yourself stopping soon and all this stuff we would touch base at that point and decide how much miles, how many miles we thought we had left between us, get the map out, look at what sort of towns or campsites or bits of wilderness that we could sleep in 
fitted into that distance bracket. And then we'd just make a decision there and then where to stop, basically. And sometimes we'd identify a place to aim for, get there, scope it out, realize there was nowhere to camp and carry on for a little bit. Um, other times we'd get a second wind and just decide to do another sort of 30 miles. So yeah, within within individual days on the ride, there was very little strictness on how much we stuck to things. The places that were less negotiable were the big cities, I guess, because we had friends in those places who were going to host us. And we had a, we'd set clusters of dates that we'd probably be there. So it wasn't a strict case of arriving on the 1st of July, for example, but it was first week of July, we'll probably be there for a couple of days. So those people, we didn't want to let down. The, the cities are broken out fairly evenly across the country. So it was a nice way to break it up. So Calgary, Winnipeg, and then uh, Montreal, Quebec City, and St. John's were the big ones. So they were the, they were the things that, those were the cities where there was more strictness in where we had to arrive. And the fact that they're so irregular means that they provide these nice little milestones to aim for. So there's the achievement when you get there and there's the, they provide like a gravity that you can structure your schedule around. So on the days that you didn't meet your planned destination, where would you stay? <laughs> so on the days where we did meet our planned destination was the same answer to this question, actually. It's just wherever looked like a likely spot. So the first, the first week out of Vancouver, we were staying in paid campsites with fences around them and nice manicured lawns that you could set up your tents on and RV parking spaces and toilet blocks and all this sort of stuff. As we got into the rhythm more and into the mountains and into the more sort of rugged, I guess, wilderness in Canada, we wild camped more and more. Um, and that was just a case of finding a spot somewhere that was out of sight, not in any sort of immediate danger of being visited by bears during the night and comfortable. And I'd, the majority of nights on the ride, we wild camped. So that's just, that was just a case of arriving and scoping somewhere out, basically. You mentioned bears, Chris. Did you see many? And what did you do when they came across your path? But before you answer that question, we are going to take a very, very short break. Cycling 4,500 miles across the second widest country in the world was hard. Turns out, writing a book about it is even harder. Eastwards and far, Chris Lee's book about riding across Canada will be available this year. It tells the story of three months of beauty, camaraderie, hospitality, and humanity. Find out more and sign up for updates at chrislee.as forward slash writing hyphen a hyphen book so here we are back with chris lee an intrepid cyclist who went from the west coast of canada to the east coast not a small feat but a feat of four thousand 500 miles. So before the break, we spoke about bears. Did you see any? So the thing in Canada with bears is the entire country is a bear zone and you, you can't be complacent, basically. So there's all this. And from the minute I said to the, someone that I was planning to do this ride at some point in my life, the first question 
anyone asked every time was what about the bears what about bears are you going to be safe against the bears like how are you going to make sure the bears don't eat you and it's this real vivid imagery that comes with canada and north america and i've encountered this in personal conversations books i've read about the ride other people i've spoken to it's just like completely pervasive this idea that you're going to be sleeping at night in your sleeping bag in your tent nice and cozy and then all of a sudden you're going to hear this rustle and this little paw at the side of your tent and some sniffling and then the bear's gonna find its way in and just eat you completely basically that's the fear and it's definitely a possibility the number of bear attacks in canada is way below what anyone thinks but there's this psychological there's this for me at least there was a constant psychological nudge that unless we were careful unless we did the right thing it was a very real possibility that we'd sort of bump into a hungry bear so we took we just we took precautions there's precautions you have to take so when we got there we went to NEC which is mountain equipment co-op it's this massive sort of outdoor superstore that sell everything you need for every outdoor pursuit ever and they've got a whole section devoted to bear protection and it's got weaponry it's got special apparatuses that you use to hoist your food up trees it's got emergency sort of signal devices to make sure that mountain rescue can get to you if you're being attacked by a bear it's got all sorts of stuff and we loaded up on as much of it as we could carry which when you're cycle touring you've got to be very specific about what you carry because there's every extra gram you carry is effort that you have to pull with you every day but we bought bear spray which is a little container basically pepper spray but stronger it's built it uses capsicum which is the chemical that makes chilies spicy and it just blasts a jet of that into the bear's face to hopefully blind it for enough time that you can make good your escape we bought bear bangers so that's the that's the previous step in the sort of defensive system so bear spray is for when they're right up in your face and you spray them and it's sort of the last hope bear bangers is when you know that they're nearby but you can't see them and it's just this little explosive canister that screws onto the end of a launcher it's about the size of a pen and you press the button and it shoots off this small firework basically which makes a loud pop and the idea is that it scares the bear away enough to go somewhere else instead and then the next layer of defense is ropes and equipment to suspend your gear up a tree away from you every night which we did religiously and then the previous line of defense is being equipped with the right knowledge basically so we spent a long time reading about the different types of bears you've got so you've got black bears and brown bears and you, each one behaves differently and you have to behave differently with each one if you encounter it so there's this web of rules you've got to know and things you've got to remember so if a black bear chases you up a tree you don't climb the tree because they can climb quickly if a brown bear chases you up a tree you can climb the tree and there's all this information you've got to learn so we spent a long time just brushing up making sure we were fully prepared every night at camp we would find a tree that's suitable distance away from where we were sleeping put all of our food in there all of our toiletries all of our clothes that we'd eaten while we clothes that we'd worn while we were eating anything that had touched or been near food or anything with scents that might attract bears it all went in a special bag up a tree a few meters in the air and it's not sure we're not sure whether it's because we took the precautions or whether we were just lucky or what but we didn't ever have any experiences of bears coming into our camp which i'm eternally grateful for um the closest we came was one day in the rocky mountains we were riding up this beautiful mountain pass with snow-capped mountains all around us streams of meltwater that was like powder blue going down into the valleys and it was beautiful exactly what you'd expect to see in a postcard of the rocky mountains kind of thing and we were riding temporarily with this american guy called patrick who we'd met that morning decided to ride a little while together because we were going the same way to a junction where he'd go off 
into the mountains. But we were riding with him. He was at the front of our little riding group. So there was three of us in a line, in the hard shoulder, heading up this mountain, it's like slowly trundling up there. And he just stopped and got off his bike and started walking really slowly backwards. And Christian and I were behind him and didn't know what was going on. So we just did the same. We stopped and we got off our bikes, started walking very slowly backwards and tried to ascertain what was happening. And Patrick turned around and started mouthing and gesturing like, bear, bear, there's a bear. And at that point, I just like, nerves started building up in me and i was like <laughs> no i didn't get my camera i was looking around for this bear trying not to make any sudden movements trying not to make any loud noises everything i'd read about the different types of bear and what they meant and what you should do immediately went out of my head and i forgot every piece of useful information it was quite a stressful experience very briefly and then he eventually pointed to where the bear was and on the other side of the road so this is it's like a two-lane highway with hard shoulders on each side that are about half a lane wide. So this thing was fairly far away from us and it was in the shrubs on the other side of the road. You could just see this black head poking out with two ears and it wasn't looking at us, it was just sort of looking, looking around. But at this point we'd heard news reports of a bear very close to this region, somewhere else in the Rocky Mountains, chasing a cycle tourist. The bear knew that the pannier bag on the cyclist's rack had food in it so it could smell this. And the cyclist was cycling as fast as he could away and the bear was just chasing and these these things can run fast they can go up to sort of 30 miles an hour so it was gaining ground on the cyclist so this story was rattling around in my head where all of the information about how to deal with bears used to be and we just looked at each other like what what do we do at this point point? and patrick was north american he was from like montana or something so he has spent a lot of time in bear country and he knows what you do so he is so we looked to him to guide us through it basically and he was just like we need to keep going need to avoid eye contact, need to make no sudden movements and basically hope that the stream of cars on the highway is enough to keep the bear from getting interested in us. And that was it. So we just got back on our bikes, gently rode forwards past this bear on the other side of the road, sort of turned to look at it a little bit as we went, but just kept going. And then that whole day afterwards, every crack in the bushes, every sound, every sort of potential noise my brain assumed was a bear. So when we had to get off and fill up our water bottles in the stream. I was looking for bears around us. When we had to set up camp later that evening, I heard bears in every part of the woods. I could imagine their like eyes on me. And it was really, like I said earlier on in this story, this it's like the psychological presence that's more of a threat than the actual presence of bears most of the time. So I just had to wind myself down from that like alert state and remind myself that we were doing the right things. Statistically, it was very unlikely that a bear would eat us blah, blah, blah. And eventually by the time it was time to go to bed that night, I was back in the sort of calm zone. But yeah, it was quite, it was quite amazing how much impact they have. Like their reputation definitely precedes them because they can cause a lot of damage very quickly if you're not careful. That was the only experience we had. We didn't see any other bears across the entire country, even though we spent a lot of time in forests and woods and lakesides and the places they spend a lot of time. You mentioned it was luck that you didn't see any bears. But I think it may have been the plan your planning was good enough, one, to know what to do when a bear should show its face and have a strategy in place that if you did, you would know exactly what to do if you should come across the bear. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you mentioned earlier about going on a cycle ride uh, with your friend Christian, but you also came across the gentleman from Montana. Mm-hmm, who had a different set of skills. So from a buddying perspective, 
which in business people call mentoring, one of the same, to be honest. How did that change the whole dynamics of your journey to meet the destination in mind? It added a lot of spice and variety to it and it kept it fresh, basically. So Christian and I were riding together every day for three months, constantly in each other's company, barely any chance to get away from each other. And that is, even with best friends, that's a very unusual dynamic to be in. That there's no, it's unusual to spend that amount of time with one person, I think. I've read a lot of books about bike touring where people get gradually, they get a bit cabin fever person they ride with and there's tension and there's sort of animosity. And one book I read turned into a fist fight at the side of the road where these two people were grating on each other so much that they ended up having a fight basically and then going their separate ways and never spoke to each other again. So there's a real need to keep the social contact fresh. And Christian and I never had any arguments or falling outs, which is fairly remarkable part of that I chalk up to keeping like meeting other people on the way and the thing with the Canada ride is that although there's a lot of variation you can do on the route there's only one there's one highway that goes coast to coast and there's one um recreational trail that goes coast to coast so basically you're going to the center of gravity of the route is around those two routes and there's certain places like there's a town in the middle of Canada where the highway is the only way to get through that point so it's a complete bottleneck so if the if the highway goes down in that region like coast to coast traffic stops across the country basically because it can't get through there so there's certain places where all the cycle tourists doing cross canada that summer and there's more and more people doing every year it's a very like popular route but there's certain bottlenecks where lots of cyclists pass through and build up so when we were near those places you're basically guaranteed to meet people and it's just this immediate community of like-minded people and you skip so many of the usual layers of conversation and acquaintance when you meet someone. At that point, you're like maybe one or two thousand miles into your ride. So you've had this shared experience that even though you weren't together when you had it, you both know that you've had it. And there's a springboard to leap into some real like deep, rewarding conversations and straight into sort of lasting friendships. So there's people we met on this ride who I'm still in touch with just off the back of the shared experience and the ability to connect on that level. And yeah, people fall in and out of your riding group. So we rode with Patrick for that morning and then he went separate ways. And then he actually had to go home because just after, as we rode through the Rockies, there was wildfires behind us. And we, after me and Patrick and Christian rode together for the morning, we went quick enough to avoid them. And he sort of slowed down a little bit and caught, got caught behind this wall of wildfire. So he ended up having to go home. After that, we bumped into all sorts of people and we rode for maybe a fortnight with these two French guys and Korean guy that they were riding with. So for a while, there was this five-person riding group that we had, and that completely changed the dynamic because, again, it's bringing together like these different rhythms and these different routines and these different um, ideas about what each day should look like and stuff. So it just keeps it fresh, keeps it interesting. How has your work benefited from your cycling? And I don't mean the, the work per se. I mean the freedom that your work has allowed you to do these sorts of epic journeys. So knowing that you can do something like this alongside work, if you make the right decisions about what your work looks like, is an incredible reminder of the importance of taking that control over your work, I think. Knowing that I could take a summer out to do this ride, it, it's basically cemented the idea that I want to work in this 
sort of freelance style for the foreseeable future kind of thing, just because it's compatible with things that I enjoy and take value from doing. Um, when you I, say uh, it allows you to do these things, elaborate on what it allows you to do. And where I'm going, what, what I'm trying to say is this freelance economy and the freedom it gives you. The disadvantages, I guess, would be you don't get holiday pay. But when you are working, you get more pay to cover any shortfall, voids in earning money. So how have you found that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a completely different set of trade-offs and considerations. So when I was working in an agency, I just got into the office, did the work that was on my to-do list that day that came from above, delivered the reports at the end of each month, had an occasional catch-up, and then I could go home at 5.30 each day and just tag out completely. There's a certain appeal to that. There's an appeal to being able to just switch off from work when you leave the office. And there's an appeal to not having to consider the sort of broader campaign structure or the broader objectives or how it all meshes together or how the business is operated. The entire time I was at that job, I felt this nagging, grating feeling that all of my work was filling someone else's pockets up. All of the work was in someone else's terms. I was completely beholden to the company's arbitrary rules on holiday time and what time you could get into and out of the office and all this stuff. And it just gradually, it's it was stifling and I felt swaddled in, in it and I wanted to be out of it. Being freelance, it's a, I think it's a work structure that has a lot of misconceptions around it because people think that you just quit your job and start doing it on your own terms and it all falls into place around that. But I think there's actually a lot of work and thought that has to go into making it viable. And from my experience, at least, that is on a lot more fronts than you encounter in an office environment. So you're responsible for the workload, you're responsible for making sure it gets done, you're responsible for ensuring that the sort of long-term objectives of your clients are met in a way that's realistic you're responsible for like you say you're responsible for ensuring that you charge enough to cover holiday and sickness but also not charging too much that you're not competitive anymore you've got to provide a valuable service and keep at the sort of end forefront of your industry and all this stuff i think that even though it is a series of trade-offs they all have the potential to be more rewarding than the alternative and there are lessons i learned riding that stick with me to this day that aren't i learned them through cycling but they're not specific to cycling and it's things we've touched on before it's like having a clear goal in mind doing one thing at a time keeping track of the smaller details as well as the bigger picture getting a routine in place and systems and then having the discipline to maintain those things so it's all great having a system and a process on paper but the discipline so the system and process on paper in Canada was ride from St. John, uh, ride from Vancouver to St. John's. But that could very easily have just, the whole ride could very easily have just drifted into obscurity. Being an idea that we spoke about in the pub that sounded really cool over a couple of pints, but never sort of materialised into anything. Because thought really does become reality, Chris, as you've demonstrated. Yeah, exactly. And it's the, it's the, it's the taking action and the discipline to keep going that changes something from idea to reality. And the main thing about this ride is just how easily it could have not happened. We did it in 2017, but the plan was kicking around in the background since 2013, when Alex and I discovered the existence of this Trans-Canada cycle path. And we're like, oh, we should ride that one day. That would be pretty cool. And that's that's where it started. And in the, it changed completely in scope and in 
outcome and all this stuff. So Alex in the end couldn't make it all the way and Christian came instead who wasn't even in those initial discussions. The route we took changed and we realised that the Trans-Canada Trail itself wasn't actually that conducive to cycling across because it's so sort of piecemeal and shoots off into all these random places. So we had to pick a different route. The core idea at the heart of it stayed the same all the way through and that was just right across Canada. So the, the idea and its implementation and that process of bringing that idea into reality was incredibly valuable from all sorts of perspectives. You know, the stories you share today are actually very similar to the journey in business. And one of the things that I take from our conversation today is freelance really does give you freedom, providing you plan meticulously and have that dream. And a lot of people think dreams don't necessarily become reality. Well, that is a misconception because if you're going to dream, dream big, dream enormous, and you'll be surprised what you can achieve. So in wrapping up today's podcast, Chris, what's next? So since the ride, I've been involved in a similar sort of longer term project to write a book about it and that what I was just saying about starting off as an idea that could quickly fizzle out into something you spoke about at the pub that sounded cool but never actually happened writing the book has definitely been shared those properties with the ride itself so it's been a gradual project of deciding whether to do it deciding whether to persevere with it losing faith in it getting faith back with it and eventually pushing through for long enough that it comes together um so yeah I'm at the moment I'm so on the ride I wrote quite a lot. I wrote a blog and I wrote articles for various bike touring magazines and sort of regional magazines in Canada. And there was always this urge to write about it because it's a way of engaging with the experience that really appeals to me, basically. It lets you hold on to the details that that fade away very quickly from your memories and allows you to sort of like crystallise down the, the experience into something more sort of permanent. So on the route, I wrote journals each day I wrote about what had happened that day and I've got these like books to look back on it the real granular small details of the ride that just keep it very rich and since Christmas 2018 I've been slowly but surely pulling these journals together into a book about the ride and the form that book will take has changed quite a lot so at first it was going to be sort of a chronological account of the ride and then it's morphed more into sort of a, a look at what is so appealing about bike touring as a lifestyle against the backdrop of Canada. That's been in process since then. At the moment, I'm about sorry, 75% of the way through the draft, and I'm in initial conversations with editors to help me get it up to the sort of the next level kind of thing. So that's been that's been the ongoing project alongside my sort of day-to-day client work. And it's been yeah, it's been a good one. Okay, thanks, Chris. Uh, To find out more about Chris Lee, he has his very own website. You can log on to www.chrisleigh.is. Today's show has been sponsored by www.teameasycrane.co.uk. We help you build your business and grow recurring profits. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button.